The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, Certified Financial Planner and CEO of Seattle-based Empirical Wealth Management. My co-host Ethan Broga is with me also today live in the studio. Hey, Ken. Hey. Good to see you, Ethan. Good to be here. Uh, This show is designed to share with you prudent investment and financial planning ideas, strategies we hope will help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions which is one of our objectives in our company and on this program. Right. If you are an individual uh, listener out there and you would like someone to give a second opinion about a particular financial planning or investment strategy you are contemplating, please feel free to call us throughout the show or even during the week and uh, give us your scenario, and we'll be happy to do our best and use our in-house expertise and taxes Estate planning, retirement planning, investment planning. What else we got in there? Um, insurance analysis, insurance if analysis. necessary? Any of those yeah. things to try to get you the best answers possible, and we'd love to talk about it on the program. You can call us today on the air at 866-472-5790. Also, if you're an individual investor and you are looking for a financial advisor, a couple of the criteria that we recommend is someone... Uh, who possesses the right experience and credentials, and those being um, within our firm, our key advisors, most of us have over a decade of experience and uh, up to 20 years of experience. And we hold all the various industry credentials that we believe are important, CFP, CPAs, um, various master's degrees. So at least we have a base of knowledge on what we're recommending. Um, we're not sales guys here. We're advisors trying to provide the best solution. Um, so credentials, experience, and then compensation structure, we believe, is an important uh, thing to think about. And uh, here at Empirical, we work on a fee-only basis, meaning that we do not, we never get compensated from any investment recommendations or financial products, whether it be insurance, um, investments, or That's otherwise. Right. That's right. The strategy. So those would be at least a couple of criteria. We go over them from time to time on the show that I would use to help me determine uh, if an advisor could help me. Give us a call. We'd love to help you wherever you are at. If you are considering or, or thinking about getting financial advice and you'd like to explore what we can do there, you can also email us at contact at empiradio.com. 
contact at empiradio.com. And Ethan, if you wouldn't mind sharing if uh, what we're looking for with advisors, if you're looking. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah if you're an individual uh, advisor out there, perhaps you've um, recently started your own company um, and you're realizing now that, hey, it's a, it's a lot of work to get the company going, aside from just helping clients do the right thing. A lot of compliance work, uh, setting up systems for trading, monitoring, all those sorts of things. Uh, we would love to hear from you as well. Um, uh, if you're looking for a very well-established firm that does the right thing for clients, has a very well-thought-out system and process to help you run your business, we would love to hear from you as well. And you probably want to give us a call off the air uh, rather than on the air about that, but feel free to do that at 206-923-3474, and that will get us right to the Empirical Tower here downtown Seattle. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Ethan, today we could talk about a number of things on the program. Yeah. I know we both have articles, and we like to use this opportunity, again, for individuals out there who um, are just tuning in and like to keep up with things that advisors like us are thinking about and talking about. Um, I think we're trying to bring a little bit of a different blend of, uh, of knowledge, I guess you could say, or I would choose to prefer to say, then what's in the general media about the daily news events? We know the case, uh, what the court did with the, uh, with the uh, health care today. Right. Um, there's ongoing news about Europe and, uh, and the U.S. US economy. And those are great things to be apprised of, but I think there's such a, an overwhelming amount of that just generally available out in the marketplace that what we're trying to do is look at practical solutions to building wealth and preserving wealth using the financial planning and investment techniques that we believe are scientifically um, the best evidence that we can find. And part of that is us, you and I, Ethan, just going on a journey. And part of the reason um, you should, if you do have an advisor, part of the reason you should, that as advisors should be compensated is to filter through all of the research and information and try to make uh, decisions about what is the best practical um, application because sure. there are so many choices now with the uh, enormous and overwhelming amount of investment products and financial planning strategies and angles out there that just filtering through those alone in my view is worth having somebody that, that spends time doing that. So I know we've got several articles here um, and uh, Ethan, I'd like to let you have the choice uh, of, of where you'd like to start on that. Yeah, well I, I really so, like yeah. the article... Yeah. Um, that came out on um, Bob Barris's uh, recent newsletter. Oh, and well, you share a little bit about uh, this Bob? Yeah, and uh, let's let's tackle that. I, I like what you're saying. Well, Bob, Bob, at least for for he writes articles and keeps tabs on the industry for advisors like us. So, as advisors, a lot of my time personally is spent dealing with either individual clients or uh, working on our company internally here. So, I don't have tons and tons of time to go to every single conference that comes around, uh, be up to date, the most current. You know what's what's current out there in our industry mm-hmm. with regards to financial advisors. So a, a year and a year or so ago, I started to subscribe to this particular newsletter, and it's written specifically for people like us, people like you, and me, Ken, who uh, work in the business, um, just so we can keep our sort of um, uh, our fingers to the pulse, as it were, of the of the industry out there. So he wrote he writes a quarterly letter, uh, and this is one of those letters. It's called "Stocks Globalism and the European Recession," and basically he talks about where. Uh, he, he attended the TD Ameritrade conference in Orlando and uh, wanted to talk about specifically one of the things I find intellectually fascinating, which was the uh, the Schiller 
10 PE. Yeah, they, the, it's something I've thought and uh, have had on my mind for some yeah. time and have looked at and read a few of Schiller's books, actually. Yep. And, so let's talk about it. And in particular, there was one, uh, it was uh, Jeremy Siegel, uh, who's also a, a big academic in the industry, uh, who's written several books, one of them, uh, Stocks for the Long Run, which I, and we both Probably his most famous is yeah. Stocks for the Long Run, right. yeah. Anyhow, anyhow uh, he, he writes um, a little bit about, hey, why that, why that, the Schiller PE10 you know, ratio may not be the best measurement for all, all time periods. And, and let's, it, um, can we pause? Yeah, let's go, pause. So what you mean by the Schiller 10P is that Robert Schiller, professor from Yale University, devised a methodology of trying to ascertain whether the market is overvalued, fairly valued, or undervalued. Right. right? And one of those metrics that has come up um, and has sustained in our industry, at least the many years that we've been doing this, has been this idea of PE. And what PE stands for is price-to-earnings ratio. So for a particular company, what price am I paying for the earnings that it generates? And most commonly, it's quoted in 12-month or annual numbers. So if I had a $10 stock, I was buying the stock and I paid $10 for it, and over the course of a 12-month period or one year, it earned $1.00. What's my PE ratio on that? Uh, call it, call them out when you know them, guys. Ten. ten <laughs> so ten. Um, ten, right? Ten. So your PE is ten. Now, if you paid ten dollars for a company that had fifty cents of earnings, then you are paying a multiple of PE ratio of twenty. Right. It's not everybody that may be tuning in knows all this industry jargon or how these things work. Makes good sense. The idea being then is there sometimes there may be a very good reason that that people would pay more or less for a particular company or industry, but it gives you a general sense. And here we're talking about a broader application, right? We're talking about it applied to the entire stock market. And I think as you kind of go through the article, it'll it'll make more sense um, because he points out maybe some flaws in the way that number gets calculated on a market basis that's different than how it is when you're just evaluating a single company. So it is, in general, a way of getting an idea of the value. Now, where Schiller comes into this discussion, and then I'll let you run with the article here, is he said, well, in any single year, a company's earnings can be very volatile. And you can have all kinds of special situations arise that maybe don't reflect the long-term sustainability of that company's earnings. And again, I think this will become apparent as you read the article, or we go through it. But imagine a company um, that in a particular year uh, gets hit with some sort of lawsuit that they have to pay out a great amount of money. happens all the time, actually. And for that particular year, they wind up having no earnings, let's say, because they got wiped out. Let's say it's a uh, uh, an oil spill in a, in, a, in a particular company at a time when maybe they're not they don't have the opportunity to price gouge on oil because oil's going through the but in just a general sense, right? And all of a sudden now billions of dollars of earnings have to be paid out. Well, does that affect, assuming that that it won't pay out as a one time thing, the long term viability of that company to generate the earnings? In that case, looking back and averaging Schiller's argument was averaging earnings over a longer period of time, maybe taking the last ten years. So in that case, each single year has a one-tenth weight, 
on the calculation, right? You would get, a, in his view, a better sense of what the real price to earnings is. And then that can be applied to get a better sense of whether or not we are over or undervalued, um, right? Sure. I'm trying to abbreviate because he's written quite a bit about this. <laughs> right. But in essence, he's saying rather than just look at one year, and I think it's important before we go further, Commonly in the in the industry, you, if you look at PE ratios, um, it can be confusing. I think to someone who's not aware of what's going, what they're looking at, because it's either the trailing twelve months, or a lot of times it's the forward, right forecast price to earnings. And right. So the trailing twelve months is, hey, what did we earn in the last four quarters, the company, and then what's today's price at the close? You take the average of those last four quarters to get your annual number, and you, then you divide that out to get your current P/E ratio. Versus the forward is, hey, what if uh, we take the last very most recent quarter and we multiply that by four, right, to get to get the forward projected earnings? And typically, companies historically have grown earnings. That's the trend, right? So more often than not, if you're using a forward average you're going to get a lower P-E ratio than if you use a trailing, which would also mean then if you're using a one-year trailing, you'll you'll probably get a uh, lower P-E than if you did use a 10-year because over 10 years, most companies do grow earnings that have survived through that period. Right. Um, so anything that dilutes that earning right, is going to increase the P-E ratio. Right. With that base of knowledge, now we can proceed forward, Ethan. Okay. Okay. Great. You know, and also we we talked a little bit this a little bit about this before with regard to uh, uh, Facebook, right? Where the the P was about two hundred. Ooh. And Eleven's earnings, so pretty pretty high there. Obviously, did you say uh, did you say two hundred? I did say two hundred. That's very expensive. Seems seems rather high. Okay. Anyway, so one of the keynote speakers um, was at this at this conference um, was a um, uh, from TD Ameritrade a person named uh, Craig Alexander. Anyway, he gave a, a pretty good summary of Doctor Jeremy Siegel's um, perspective on current valuations. All right. And basically, he made a, a few key points um, with regard to what Siegel had to say about this. Um, so the first point was this. Uh, stocks have always, over the long run, outperformed bonds. Mm-hmm. So why would you want to invest in bonds? So these are just a couple of statements, and we'll kind of circle back around and tackle each one of these. Yeah. Uh, right now, bonds are delivering yields below the inflation rate and don't promise much total return. So the disparity between stocks and bonds is even greater than normal, which is true. Rates are very, very low. Um, stocks are cheap right now, despite what those who rely on the Schiller PE10 ratio would tell you, which is kind of our key point. I think the most interesting of all these points, probably. And then... Uh, that high-dividend-paying stocks historically have outperformed indices, and today's dividends are higher than Treasury bond yields. So we can talk about that as well. All right. But let's tackle the first one. Stocks over the long run have outperformed bonds, so why would you invest in bonds? Uh, says here, to make the first point, Siegel presented uh, the graphic on this page, which obviously you can't see because we're on the radio, um, showing the worldwide stock and bond and government bills returned returns for 19 developed nations. Uh, the rest of the world has averaged five to six real stock market returns, 5%, I should say, 5 to 6% real stock market returns, whereas the U.S., the number is 6 to 7%, well above uh, bond and bill returns. 
Um, Siegel then hammered home his second point, telling us that uh, respected forecasters are projecting 2 to 4% inflation in the future, compared with a, with a 10-year Treasury yield of 1.8%, and a promise from the Fed, Fed Chairman Bernanke, obviously, to keep rates close to zero through 2014. So just real quick, I'm looking at the chart, and since it is the radio, I'll try to explain this. But uh, what you have here is going back from 1900 through the end of 2010. Okay. And it has three bars on it, and it shows the returns, the annual real returns. And what real returns are are returns that have been uh, reduced by inflation. So uh, for for, uh, everyone, actually, we should be more focused, and Schiller and Siegel, I think both would agree on that, that the real thing you should be looking at is real inflation-adjusted returns. What does my dollar buy me today relative to what it bought me five years ago? And right. if my even earning interest, I can buy less for that amount of money um, that I've earned, then, then that's I didn't make a real return even though I had a, a positive nominal return is what they call it. So, right. Anyway, what you see here is in most of these countries, I think the other thing worth uh, – Starts. There's Italy, Belgium. There's about twenty or so countries, I guess, and nineteen countries. Um, is that most of them throughout that period, their stock markets or equities, the bars are greater than that of the bills or bonds. Right. Um, even though Italy had a lower average annual real return on stocks for since that time period, it's been about two percent. Um, it was still better than the negative three some percent. For example, buying their version of treasury bills right so it's it's important to realize that there's a relationship there that has to be accounted for even if stock returns aren't great right two percent it's relative to what right right losing money to inflation every year for the last however many years um i think that's where siegel becomes such an advocate for stocks right because he he really has honed in on those relationships right Go ahead. Proceed onward. Yeah, I just... Uh, oh, we've got one minute or less. Oh, the music's on. We'll I, be, we'll I hear be music right, right now, Ken. Okay. We'll be right back, and we'll pick <laughs> up on this discussion. All right. Thank you. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio. This is Ken. If you would like to give us a call throughout the show here, 866-472-5790, or shoot us an email at contact at empiradio.com. Ethan and I are sitting here discussing an article um, that uh, Bob Vares wrote uh, in an update that Ethan gets about uh, what Jeremy Siegel, he's an academic and an author, um, a pretty famous book, I, I, at least it is in in the investment circles called yeah. stocks for the long run. Mm-hmm. And his view, what he was contesting is uh, within the academic community, there's another uh, academic, Robert Schiller, who likes to use uh, a 10 year average earnings ratio um, using 10 years of earnings to calculate what the price to earnings value is. And why is all this important before Ethan proceeds on with this article? Why are we even talking about this? Why are we not talking about the debt crisis or healthcare or any of the other potential market moving news uh, because all of that news is very short term and very speculative in nature where if you can figure out what 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 is helps control some of those emotional based investment decision making urges in my view is having a broad understanding of what really drives markets over the longer term and one of those things is understanding the way that markets get valued Am I paying an ex- when because what tends to happen, uh, and we know it, Ethan, is when when stocks actually become very very cheap, they tend to have higher expected future returns. Right. Um, and by the time they get very cheap, a lot of the risk has already been realized because yes. the markets decline. Right. right. Um, and so, in order for that risk to not be realized as higher returns, then some of the fears of the market is going to go to zero or end or broader things like that have to be realized. But if you if you do believe companies will continue to exist regardless of what happens with healthcare or that the European debt crisis will eventually get 
under control may take a long time, but the market's pretty good about pricing that in so that the future return should be over a longer period uh, commensurate with the risk you take, regardless of what the current news is. Um, otherwise, then, again, stocks would have to get continually repriced. But my point is, once they're repriced, right, once the market's dropped, if if the market demands a premium, and we're talking about the difference between inflation and then also bonds, mm-hmm. um, in order for stocks to make any sense for anyone, they should have a premium over both of those things. Right. Okay, so uh, the premium tends to be higher when there's more risk and uncertainty in the market. Mm-hmm. So it's I think it's very counter to a lot of how, how we feel instinctually and in our gut when we sure. see the market going down day after day or right. dropping two or three and then over a week or two, five or 600 points even. Um, it's very hard for us to stay focused on the fact that every time it does that, uh, as long as we weren't extremely overvalued when the price drop began, so at the times where we were in bubble states, right. in my view, if the market was trading, it's, you were talking about Facebook at 200 times earnings. But if the market was trading at 40 or 50 times earnings, um, now you got some dropping going on that has nothing to do with the fact that the mar- that, that earnings won't eventually come back, right? Or, or we won't earn money or company. It has to do with the fact that people just got too crazy in terms of paying way too much for stocks. Right. Um, that's different than saying, hey, stocks are very fairly valued or undervalued, but the market's continuing to go down because of speculation. Speculation, basically, uh, risk adver- adverse, risk adverse um, investors out there wanting to not be around the market at bad times. Right. And even Schiller, part of his study was, hey, when we see whatever ratio method you use, ten years, or or as Siegel's arguing, a different one, I think what they would both agree on is the cheaper the the market is, um, it tends to get cheap. At bad times, when no one wants to own stocks, <laughs> not during good times. Exactly, when it's when you would traditionally think, "Hey, I should be buying stocks because everybody's making a killing, right?" Yeah, Which tend opposite. to follow bubbles, yep. precede bubbles. It's always at a time where we're coming to, you know, the end of the world, right. and stocks get really, really cheap. Well, that's when they tend to have their highest expected return. With that context, Ethan, yeah. proceed on. <laughs> well, that's great stuff, Ken. Oh, hey, thanks. You're, you're exactly right. <laughs> come on, come on, come on. It just reminds me of you know coming at, coming out of the. Uh, the tech bubble, right? Uh, the, the height of the tech bubble, the, P, the PE exactly. That's where uh, was uh, was roughly fifty on the on the on the S and P five hundred going into this this last past decade, and there was no no real surprise then that because the, initially the PE was so high in the beginning of the decade, there wasn't really a lot of returns to be had there, right? Right. It took a lot of time to get that back down to normal. Right. Uh, we, we've we've been there now for a couple of years, but that's that's exactly what you're talking about. All right, so. Um, I wanted to really quick take a take a step back here and just reread um, point number two, All right. if I could. Numero dos. Right. Actually, for point number one, just revisit that briefly. Okay. Uh, basically, over, over the time, over a long period of time, and the study covers nineteen different countries through basically one hundred ten years. Uh, it just shows very well that equities have had, have had a historical return greater than bonds and bills, bonds or, or T bills, uh, over that period of time, adjusted for inflation, which is. Pretty well understood and probably very widely accepted. Uh, point number two, here it is. Uh, right now, bonds are delivering yields below the inflation rate and don't promise much total return, so the disparity between stocks and bonds is even greater than normal right now. And uh, for this, he, he goes on to say, uh, Siegel then hammered home this point, telling us that respected forecasters are projecting 2 to 4% inflation in the future compared with a 10-year Treasury yield of 1.85%. 
Okay, just real stop right there, real quick. Hit the brakes. The inflation rate is, is projected to be uh, either equal to or as much as two times the current yield on the ten-year Treasury. Right, so that's negative. That's a, that's a real negative yield. Right, right. And we've had that promise by the Fed to keep rates, uh, rates close to zero, at least through 2014. So that just means that the longer the, the historical relationship is holding true, it is obviously true. But it's even more true now because rates are so very, very low, and inflation is expected to exceed that by some great margin, equal to or, or uh, 100% higher than that. So what we're saying here then is, if we have two to four percent inflation, which seems reasonable, reasonable, yeah, highly reasonable that that's a possibility, and that you bought a ten-year Treasury bond uh, and just held it, you. Or have the potential then to earn a negative real return. Right, exactly. And what that means then is when you're looking at stocks, before we proceed through this, then the lens you might look at is, yeah, do I need to get, even if I'm a pretty negative uh, Nelly on stocks, um, given the options that I have, do I, do I believe that there would be uh, any likelihood at all of having a premium over uh, the, the treasury return and inflation with stocks. And I think traditionally, unless stocks were extremely, very highly overvalued, um, that's been a pretty high probability of, of coming true. Right. Okay, go ahead. All right. And then I think the, the most interesting point of this is number three, uh, which is okay. this. I'll read it again. All right. And then we'll start going through some of the data and talk more about the PE ratios and things. Uh, stocks are cheap right now despite what those who rely on the Schuttler PE10 ratio would tell you. So here, let's talk about that. Um, I'll read this here. Uh, Siegel told the audience that the S&P 500's PE ratio has averaged around 15 for the past 50 years, which we're, we're pretty well aware of. Uh, when interest rates are below 8%, I'm sorry, 8% or below, then the average has been closer to 19. So in times when PEs are, rather, interest rates are 8% or lower, the PE tends to be higher. Stocks become more attractive. People are willing to pay up for them. Right. And what about today? Well, based on uh, 2011 earnings, $97 on the S&P 500, Siegel calculates the P.E. level of 12.3. Using a slightly higher 105 earnings forecast for 2012, the P.E. would come in a tad lower. I like how he says this. Ipso facto, the broad index is now uh, selling at either 20, a 20% discount with a 15 PE, mm-hmm. or a 53% discount, a PE of 19. So that's pretty amazing. Um, so based on these, this, his, his assessment here, um, things look relatively cheap, basically, in, in any way you slice it, either on uh, past earnings uh, or using the slightly, uh, earnings, slightly higher earnings forecast for 2012. Any comments on that before we uh, So he, he uh, right, just to finish that next little... Subparagraph, he projects an 8.1% real return over the long term based on the current earnings yield. And so the earnings yield is another um, variable that investors use, which is you take your, um, your, your P, one divided by the 12.3 PE. Um, so basically you're, you're getting an idea of, well, what am I yielding? Um, what's, if you take their earnings and divide it by the price, right? Okay. What what am I what am I getting? What's the yield? So basically it's 8.1%. Um So the the real return is what he's coming up with is is uh um much higher than the 
1.85 that you would get on a 10-year treasury. Right. Um, and would afford you a nice premium over inflation if that was the reality. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. So moving on here, we're going on here. Uh, of course, not everybody thinks that one year's worth of earnings gives us an accurate market valuation, which is re- reasonable, I guess. Siegel took that argument head on, noticing that the Schiller PE10, which uses an unweighted average of the past 10 years' earnings, is hovering around 21.2, meaning stocks are more than 30% overvalued. Uh, Siegel said that we should be cautious about using the PE10 as a relative valuation mechanism during anomalous time periods. Well, like moves goes on here. Like, for instance, any 10-year per time period that includes calendar year 2008. <laughs> We're all aware of what happened in 2008. Obviously, the, the advent of the crisis and the, the effect on the stock markets was obviously profound. Um, dropped quite a bit. In 2008, reported the S&P earnings collapsed to $14. Well, actually, 14.88, which is astounding to me. We were talking this before the, the show started. Um, today, it's $97. Right. It was a f- about basically $15, which is in- that's an incredible difference. Um, uh, what's more than uh, that was more than 80% below the previous year. Looking closely at the numbers, however, he found that most of this drop was due uh, was due a total of $450 billion write-off at three companies, Bank of America, Citibank, and AIG. In other words, that's the, the vast majority of the decline in the earnings was related to those three companies specifically right, right. and their write-offs. Which they, they overwhelmed the number. Right. And there's a reason for that, right? Yep. Um, we all know we're pretty familiar with what happened with AIG, um, Citibank, and Bank of America, who took, off, took on basically two two companies. <laughs> they probably didn't want right, Merrill Lynch right, and then right. also Countrywide forced to, to eat a lot of um, bad debt, basically. So I think what's interesting about that is he talked about the fact that the companies at that time were maybe 1% of the total market capitalization. So when you look at the S&P 500 and you're trying to get what's the P.E. ratio of all 500 of those stocks, because that's a little different than calculating it on one individual company, right? So if we're tracking the price level or the growth of an investment on that index, it's the when you do that, right? It's the you realize that companies have different weightings in the index, right? But those three, the weightings that they actually made up of the total index, uh, was just around one percent. So that means ninety nine percent of the index was made up of the other four hundred and ninety seven companies. So the S and P though they don't capitalize cap weight, and cap capitalization just means how many shares do I have outstanding times the price of my company. Um, and then bigger companies that are dollar, like we were just talking about how much Facebook became on a capitalization basis. It's right. huge because people were paying so much for it. Mm-hmm. But when you do that, then you would organize the weights that each company gets in the index by their size. What's the dollar value of the company if you sold all the stock right at the price the stock is at versus the number of shares you have? But when they calculate the the earnings calculation to get the price to earnings multiple on a group of stocks, all 500, they don't do it that way. Um, but you know, basically, um, what he's saying is that the, they they weight the returns. But with earnings, a smaller company that writes off assets counts dollar for dollar against, say, ExxonMobil or the other giants that are in the index. Um, if you were to cap weight the 2008 earnings, the year-over-year drop is closer to 25%. Uh, 
So then you plug that into the unweighted PE10 or the 10-year average calculation, and you get a revised PE ratio of about 18. Um, so the overvaluation disappears by more than 50% in his view, right? Right. Okay. Um, so he suggests, I don't know if you want me to go ahead. Go ahead, yeah. Uh, they make one more, one more adjustment to the account for unusually high number of share buybacks in the market recently. So buybacks, uh, cause earnings, uh, per share to rise at a faster rate than what the 10 year average would do. So we were saying if, if you had, um, well, we weren't saying, but let's just, in our analogy, we had a $10 stock and $1 of earnings. Um, but now say you had 10 shares outstanding. If it's ten dollars times ten, it's a hundred dollars of company value. But one of the things a company could do is start buying shares back. They could buy half the shares back and have five shares. Um, now you've got the same amount of earnings going forward, but the earnings per share just doubled. Right. Mm-hmm. So that wouldn't be reflected in the ten-year average, right? Because you're going all the way back. Right. Where if it's in the current or more recent P, it's reflected in there. So he's just making a point about if you factored that in, um, you come up with kind of he calls like a doubly revised PE that gets him to around 15 times earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this interest rate environment, that would mean stocks are either fairly valued or relatively cheap. Right, and I, I, just, I mean I hear about buybacks all the time. Companies, you know, are flush with cash right now. They, they at least a lot of them. Uh, they're the big companies in the U.S. anyway. Um, so, yeah, I hear about this on the news all the time. Companies are issuing buybacks, whatever, whatever company it is. There's lots of them out there. So definitely true. So that leads you to the dividend concept, right? That was the next point. Yeah, that was the fourth, uh, fourth, thing, uh, the fourth thing I should say. But the most fascinating of these was the valuation to me, anyway, was the valuation on the PE ratios. Right. Um, I like having some that type of, I don't know, analysis brought to bear on, on what normally would be a very simple understanding. Hey, this it is what it is. There's nothing to argue with here. But really, there are some exceptions or some rules or things you should, I think, think about before you make the judgment, snap judgment, as to, hey, what is the P-E ratio? Well, I, I, we, I think we're going to have to take a break here, Ethan. But when we come back, I'd like to talk now about a little bit more about how we would practically apply this debate. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, between both the Schiller and what Siegel's doing. Um so when we do come back, we'll talk about that and how you might apply it to the view of what you're doing with your portfolio. Sounds good. And your allocation stocks and bonds and so on. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to Empirical Investing Radio. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment, and that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio. Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at one 800 923 
800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All righty. Welcome back to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken and Ethan. We're here high atop the Empirical Tower in downtown Seattle. <laughs> right. Uh, it was a nice day today, Ethan. I don't know. It looks a little bit starting to cloudy, cloudy out there. Out there yeah. yeah. So um, it's a good coming. time to be in here. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully it won't rain. I'd like summer to start at some point. Yeah. Um, I, I always it, feel slightly cheated here. Yeah, indeed. It, with that. Maybe mid-July, I think summer will be here. That'll be nice. About two weeks of it. I got to get out there, move and shake a little. (laughs) So, anyway, we're talking about um, trying to get our arms around here, the valuation, all the day-to-day news out there that we get bombarded with. Um, You can get distracted with that, but in the end, the value of what you're paying for a company. And last week, before you came in, Ethan, I was reading quotes from uh, the famous investor benjamin graham who uh-huh. was a mentor tutor and uh, someone that the famous warren buffett looked up to yeah and uh, got kind of coined as the originator of the value investing idea right and many of his quotes if you read through the stuff that he wrote had to do with ignoring the day-to-day market noise and news and even the fluctuations um, throughout the day and really getting to the bottom of what I'm buying is the value of, of a company. And if I can buy companies at great prices, at good value, and I can be patient enough to hold them, I will do well well with my investing. Right. It was interesting. I was reading a little bit about his background, Ethan, and he actually got wiped out in the Depression. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. He was doing, he was doing investing and um, got wiped out. But I think what was what is inspiring about that is he stuck with it. He didn't give a lot of people. They have one bad investment experience. That'd be pretty bad. And, impression. and they say, hey, I, I'm not right. How many people like, like when we were first getting into this, there's not a lot of depression era uh, people that were very 
anti-stock and very, yeah, I don't do yeah. risky stuff because I, my parents went through a depression. Sure, I know sure. Um, but he went on to become very, very, very wealthy and did very, very well because he learned, uh, from that experience and he had the discipline it takes. And I think the market shakes a lot of people out. And, um, unfortunately they don't recover because they, they get burned and, and they, they don't learn from their mistakes and they don't study what really works. I think, you know, he, in my view, um, was a good example of, of an empirical type of investor um, because he really looked, he was, a, he was an academic as well mm-hmm. um, and taught, and he, he looked at the, for the evidence. He looked at the data. So we're talking about the, the idea then of getting to this valuation and going into the break here. We were kind of talking, finishing up the discussion about uh, the P-E ratio, um, and I want to come back to that in the end here and summarize our viewpoints about, well, you have Schiller saying 10-year and, and, and other academics looking at that. He's saying hey, maybe that's not the best way to look at it to get to the current value. Right. I think under either of them, um, you're not in a bubble-type valuation situation. I think they would both agree on that. Um, nothing like what we've experienced at, at uh, euphoric optimism uh, right. <laughs> levels. So now he talks about the dividend yield, and I thought I'd just run through this yeah, real go quick. Ahead. And basically says, hey, fourth point was about dividends in the presentation that Siegel gave at this mm-hmm. TD Ameritrade conference. And uh, basically, he divided up the S&P historically into quintiles, the top quintile. In any given year was 100 highest dividend payers. The second was the next and so on, down to the lowest. And when you look at um, the birth of the S&P 500 in 1957, the high Highest dividend paying stocks have returned an average of 12.61% real returns, uh, a year compounded with 10.02 a year from the S&P overall. During the last decade, the S&P dropped, uh, or sorry, the S&P 500's top dividend quintile returned 5.9 positive return versus about a half a percent for that 10 year period for all of the stocks, right? For the index as a whole. And we've talked a lot about the last decade. Sure, yeah. You didn't just have to focus on value or dividend stocks because those two can be uh, analogous with each other. Dividend can just be one other form. And I I know Siegel's a big dividend guy, but I I do subscribe to some of the other additional academic work on that to say, well, if you just focused on a dividend strategy, which we do, we have that right in our portfolios for people who want to focus on that. Yeah. Um, one of the things you have to be cautious about is you start to miss out on industry sectors or companies that if you used more of a value approach, you still get the premium on the return, right? That value premium, but you don't have to sacrifice diversification and dividend policy can be changed very quickly and easily. So anywho, Siegel made a similar point about value stocks. He goes on to talk about that, that we know that value stocks did have done much better than growth stocks yep. over the long run. And get real quick, just value, value, All right. value companies, again, or value stocks just mean basically low PE ratio stocks. Yeah. So we define that pretty well. Low, low, right? low priced. You're paying for lower priced stocks. Yeah. Um, which Benjamin Graham would, would, would say that's good. Yeah. That the, hey, these are companies that you're getting a, a, a value on. Right. Um, he would never buy a Facebook, for example, yeah. if it was 200 times earnings, right? That's not a value. <laughs> That's for company. sure. That's a growth company. I think Warren Buffett yeah. probably wouldn't either. Well, there you have it. Yeah. I don't know what his, he might. Uh, 
but uh, traditionally he wouldn't use the if that was the only measure he wouldn't he wouldn't do it um so same thing like our our global portfolios have very uh, large value tilts and small tilts and they did very well through this so-called lost decade we've talked about that because we and we globally diversified which hey that may have not worked so great in the 2008 situation because that was a systemic kind of crisis right but it worked extremely well during the 2000 uh 2001 2002 market declines absolutely um that so if if it if it works three or four times out of five it's pretty good strategy still right okay so if you look during the last decade saying hey the s&p high dividend stocks um with the lowest pe did 8.91 percent a year um Let's get let's skip ahead here. So today, the average dividend yield of the top ten div- paying stocks in the United States comes to about three point eight percent is the yield. Globally, the figure is six point five percent, and in the emerging markets, the top ten provide a five point eight percent average dividend yield. Yeah. So he's suggesting Siegelson says, "Hey, the bond yields are so low." That investors can look to higher high uh, dividend paying stocks as an income alternative. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't really either. No, and there are other academics who don't agree with that either. And we've had we talk about Larry. He doesn't. I don't think he's a big fan of that approach because you can still uh, lose half your investment overnight or more, right? The right, and the dividend can be changed. There's no lock yeah. on the dividend, right? So the right. company that you buy because it's such a high paying dividend stock could tomorrow say, you know what, we can't afford to pay a dividend. Dividends gone, and and the stock price is fifty percent lower. And we've showed empirically in our studies, we put papers together on this that if you look at the the dividend focused or like the dividend aristocrats strategy, yeah, and others, sure. run the numbers on the decline during the decline, and it went down. Those dividend stocks just went much. down just as much as every other stock did. So I think that's a little bit of a naive um, approach. And I do believe that uh, it would be worth pointing out. I believe he's involved in some funds that, uh, you know, that, that he's, I think they're the Wisdom Tree funds yeah, that, that's right. that happen to do dividend type strategies. Yeah. So there's a little bit of an economic axis he might have to grind on that. Oh, I see. Sure. Yeah. It's possible. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, he likes that approach. I don't know if which one came first or how that all came, but, um, just so happens that he happens to have strategies that would help you do that as well. Mm-hmm. But um, what is inarguable is the fact that we have a reasonably high dividend rate because of low valuations and companies are earning earnings. So therefore, they can pay these dividends right now. I would use a, a broader, more diversified approach. I would never buy 10 stocks of any kind. Um, you know, he's talking about top 10. Can't yeah. stop. So... You have higher dividend yields than treasury bonds, though, on, you know, on some of this stuff, particularly on, on, on emerging markets as a group, for example, or a whole, than our U.S. Treasury. Um, you have reasonable P.E. ratios. And let's now take both of these arguments and, and kind of here's how I view this stuff. Um, because, first of all, I would much rather have two independent academics for all intents and purposes, minus some of the things I talked about with Siegel having some funds, debating out the data on this stuff than subscribing to some broker's research um, and what their firm is saying about it. So number one, I like the fact that we're looking at that, uh, and I would recommend anyone focus on that rather than what some brokerage company or, or newsletter 
is talking about is going to happen tomorrow or in the next month with the stock market because all that stuff is just nonsense. Um, we could all speculate, right? And just because I know a lot about the current events um, doesn't enable me to be a great predictor of stock market sure. returns, right? Right, or even future events, mm-hmm. um, because I may have gauged what is currently in the spotlight pretty well. It's the thousand other things that tend to pop up that have an effect on ultimately what happens in the short term to right. stock markets and economies that I that that they're not very good at gauging. Um, and you hear that a lot, by the way, in the active world when things don't go right. It's well. I was right about what I was saying. It's just I didn't know this and that and the other things were going to happen. Of course. That's the problem with that game. That's the nature of it, right? Right, right. You can be completely right about the fact, you know, the issue at hand, Yeah. but that can still prove you wrong in terms of what happens in the return. It's a fundamental fatal flaw with that strategy. Yeah. So just pointing out that I'd much rather um, have these kinds of debates and for me, it's a measure of under either of them. What what things would those two guys agree on? Schiller or what Siegel's saying? And I think that it's more. They would both agree that it's probably more important to look at the relative value of things, absolutely, than to try to decipher daily news events. I have no doubt that's probably true. Secondly, I would I would say that if you look at what we're trying to accomplish here um, with our clients, is hey, it's it's. Relatively, we are not in some kind of bubble valuation with stocks. You could argue about, hey, how much are we undervalued or slight or overvalued? But it, you can't argue that it's like the times of, in the past where we've been in bubble levels, right? Right. Under any of the methodologies, we are not paying 50, 60, or 70 times earnings, right? right? Even if we use 10 year numbers. And further, if, if it is, if you take the view that it is slightly higher than average, it's acceptable given the current interest rate environment. As well, right? Right. Yeah, so those are all good points. Thirdly, if we are looking at it relative to inflation and or current treasury yields, what is what they would both agree on is what the yield is on treasuries. <laughs> I, I, we can all agree on that, and we can all agree that it's pretty low. Yeah. So our strategy there has to be where we're buying short-term stuff, or to get the yield up, we start to step into credit risk. Uh-huh. And we've talked about how we do that in a, in a strategic way or in a, a risk-managed way. Um, stepping into it and just putting all my money in high yield bonds, say 100%, or preferred stocks or something that has the potential to have volatility, now has to go, in my view, through a proper um, evaluation of the risk versus the return you're expecting to get, and then benchmark then that again to our equities, some combination of an equity and more conservative bond portfolio. Does that get me where I want to be in a more efficient way uh-huh. or risk-managed way? Then just throwing all my money, the simplistic or naive view of just throw everything into a high-yielding approach that has a lot of volatility or credit right. risk or other types of risks, interest rate risk and or currency risk or whatever it is that you might be taking to try to enhance that yield, that's not the end all of that. I think they would both agree on that. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the practical application would be, hey, is there – Opportunity. If we look at the past data um, in any of these individual countries, do we believe that if you have a 20-year a, a time horizon or more, that it's a very reasonable opportunity that stocks will be the best opportunity on a global basis to do better than bonds or putting it in cash? And I believe that everybody would agree yes. Yes. Um, looks like we're almost out of time. Sure, everybody, yeah. 
But hopefully that's a little bit more encouraging and gets you to think about sticking with a well-thought-out, diversified strategy, um, which we would recommend more so than bouncing in and out all over. That's all the time we have, Ethan. I'm sorry, man. You well, didn't great get show. Comment. No, it's all right. Another solid show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week to uh, pick up on this. We have several other topics we wanted to address. So we'll see you next week. Hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 